Hello, my name's Bradley James, and you are listening to What We Talk About When We Talk About Talk, the podcast on all things Oracy from School 21. With Mr. Thomas! <laughs> Hello, yeah, Amy. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Have you been, are you back? Back as in, back at school. Uh, not yeah. just yet, still ploughing on with uh, virtual learning, um, but I'm back in in a couple of weeks, which is exciting. Get to see some of my kids again. Very exciting. Yeah, I went into school the other day. I think more and more children are starting to come in now. And uh, it seems like it's heading to, towards more like the, new, normality. the new normal, which turns out is actually quite similar to the old normal. <laughs> yeah. As time goes on, it will be. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely ready to get back to normal. Well, I wanted to first highlight some great work that Voice 21 are doing. Um, so there's a few things going around. There's the all-parliamentary group on Oracy set up by Emma Hardy. And so there's a teacher survey going around which will uh, circulate on our Twitter, which is at Oracy Squad. But you've got some details of uh, an, an interesting conversation that people get, can join in with. Yes, yeah, so if you think speaking skills might be under threat just when we need them the most, you can join a digital thinking, which is basically like a virtual conversation. Um, it's in partnership with the all party parliamentary group um, set up for Oracy, and it will be a conversation through Zoom hosted by Tortoise, which is a media group. And they want to find a more democratic and inclusive process for journalism. Um, so if you'd like to join, it's on Tuesday, June 30th at 3.30pm. Um, and the sign up is free. And we will be posting the link to that on our Twitter at Oracy Squad. So go there if you would like to get a ticket and sign up. Great. And also, just before we talk about who we're speaking to today, uh, learningfromlockdown.com is a great website which Big Education have launched. I've put a post on there, which I'm sure you have. What, what is your blog about? It's all about parent communication. So check it out, guys. Yeah, so there's uh, just to clarify for people that, that it's a website launched by Big Education and um, it has loads and loads of blogs about learnings from lockdown, specifically to do with education moving forward. So, Amy, today we're speaking to Bradley James. So exciting. Who played Arthur in the BBC series Merlin. Um, he also played Damien in the Netflix series Damien. And he's also been in iZombie and Homeland of Medici. Um, and The Liberator is a new Netflix series he's in, which is coming out soon. And we spoke a little bit about auditions. He also grew up both in America and England. So I wanted Ooh. to get his thoughts on the difference between the American high, uh, school system and the English school system. And we spoke also a little about difficult conversations. Oh, I need some of that for myself. So. I, think, I think we all do. Okay, right, let's, let's hear it. I want to talk a little bit about auditions quickly. Yeah. So one of the things we attempt to do at our school with Oracy is teach students the, to be agile with their voices. Which, yeah. which can mean a lot of different things. But for me, it's about having the confidence and ownership over yourself to go into any room and have an impact. So that might translate into a job interview, a college interview. It might be socially. It might be uh, in a work environment. So I suppose a broad analogy for that is auditioning, isn't it? Because you're going into lots of different rooms. You've got to go in there for a short period of time and have an impact. And I feel like 
the key is authenticity, whatever that might mean. And I'm going to tell you a very quick story about horrendous audition story that I have from, you know, a few lives ago when I was attempting to be an actor. <laughs> this, is, this was an audition at the Globe Theatre. I may have told you this, I'm, I'm sure I have. And it was like a quite a big deal for me because I hadn't really had much. And if I'd got this part, it would have been, you know, big, big play, big production at the Globe Theatre. You know, it could, it could have been a, a bit of a big break moment. And I knew the writer, Shay Walker, and it was the front line. Did you see that? The no. It was the first ever contemporary play put on at the Globe. Okay. Anyway. You'd be well suited for that. It was perfect. Boy on a bike, kind of little chavvy London kid. You know, it was perfect. It was the perfect part. It was dream role. <laughs> I knew the writer. He called me in for the audition. It was all set up for like... You've I've seen you riding around on a bike outside his house. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I messed that audition up. I cannot tell you how much. Why? Well, I went for, let me just give you the punchline and I'll, t I'll maybe talk about why. So I went for a drink with the writer after, and it wasn't his sole decision. It was Dom Dominic Drumgall was the artistic director of the great yes. time. So it was with him as well. And it was clear that I hadn't got the part. And the phrase he used was, we had a chat and he was talking through and being quite gentle with me. But the phrase he used was, there's no deodorant for desperation. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I just went in there and I was crippled by what I thought they wanted me to be. Yeah. And I had no confidence in just being me. Yeah. That gets to the heart of what I think would be an empowering thing to teach children in schools to somehow have the confidence just to go into a situation and trust yourself and that you are good enough whatever that means, but you are good enough just to be you and that people will buy that. You are touching on something that if you were able to word this in such a way that would be instantly understandable, you may have just found some sort of elixir of life kind of equivalent because telling someone to be themselves or in advising someone to be themselves, it seems so easy once you are aware of what that means. But I can honestly say I did not know what people meant by that when I was first auditioning. So as you know, I had, in our first year, I was very fortunate and I found myself with an agent, still my agent to this day, lovely Ruth. And she said, right, here's what we're gonna do. In the holidays, I'm just gonna put you forward for auditions. It's not about getting a job, just get in the room, feel it out, and by the time you get to the end of your third year, you'll have had some experience and it'll see you right. So I'm like, okay, auditions, sure, let's do that. And I'm getting sides through. And I remember, I remember one audition very specifically because I went in and I read with the casting director, who was a woman called, and, and it escapes me. And she rang up Ruth and she said, okay, I want him to come in next week we're going to bring the director the producer this is when we were in this might have been the summer of first year when we just finished first year and she basically said he's got this part bring him in director producer is going to be there whoever else writer or something and ruth goes right there you go just go in and just do your thing well go and be yourself i went in there i went into like a 
like a haze. I came out as though it was like I blinked outside the door. And when I opened my eyes, I was back outside the door facing the other way as I just walked out the door. And then as I walked away from the audition, these reveries of what had just happened began to haunt me. It's like when you blacked out when you drunk or something. It's like I blacked out, I went into a trance or something, and I suddenly remembered what I did in that room. And I'm, I just went into this monotone voice that said words which were written on a page and said them at the time when somebody else wasn't speaking. And in hindsight, the producer and the, and the writer, they must have had a moment where they sort of looked at each other and went, what the, who she brought in here? And she rang up Ruth afterwards and she went, that was diabolical. He needs some serious acting training. Like there was no tone. Literally at one of the best drama schools in the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. And she had every right to say that because as I remembered, as it came flooding back to me, what I had just done, I, like, I can only sort of cringe in my seat about the whole experience because it was dreadful. And I didn't have a clue what it meant to be myself. Cut to, by the time I get out, of the first job I ever got was called Disconnected. And it was my first audition after the last day of Drama Centre, Live the Dream viewing on the 7th of July. Next day, audition for Disconnected. And I got the part. And the only reason I got that part is because I had gone to however many auditions, done dreadfully in the vast majority of them, but had learned some semblance of being myself in the room. And a big part of myself in the room had to remember that he didn't care whether I got the job or not. Now, obviously I did care, but what you realize is that it is in no way in your control. And control is a big word here because if you're going in there trying to be what you think people want of you, you try and control what it is you're doing. You try and control their reaction. You cannot do that. It's impossible. Anyone viewing you is going to have their own free will and their own opinion. Being an actor, and I'm sure, Daniel, you have found this being a teacher, you will put hours in in certain moments of your life and people won't even notice them. You won't get a pat on the back for them. There will be no celebration of them. The, the actor version of that is working on an audition for a part that you want so bad. You go into the room, you're in there for three, four minutes, you come out that room, you never hear anything about it ever again. And that will happen over and over again, over and over again. And you'll never get a well done. For... So this, this is actually good. This is the final thing I want to speak to you about on auditions is mm -hmm. how you cope with rejection and failure because you're going to get a lot more of that than success as you've just highlighted. So you, yeah. it, it strikes me as such a strange existence, an actor who's consistently just putting themselves through rejection and failure. And even the very successful, like even the top echelons of successful actors will still have that experience as well. Yeah. Um, so, so the majority of like just people making a living, they are just throwing themselves head on into rejection after rejection, after failure, after failure. And I suppose where it links with education is I feel education, we've spoke a little bit about the difference between American and English, but certainly with high stakes testing, for example. So you go through your educational journey and you basically end on a two week period where there's this huge high stakes test 
and it's sort of built around success and failure. Yeah. And then that leads into ranking and comparing. And even you mentioned setting earlier, where you've got set one, two, three, four, five. There's all of this levels of comparison and rejection and failure and ranking. And, and so I just wondered how you cope with it, because that's like your life. Yeah. The first thing I, I would probably need to say at the very beginning of this is I, I'm very fortunate and I'm, I count myself very fortunate in the sense that I have got roles that my heart has been on the verge of exploding for because I have felt so passionately about them. And for every rejection that I've had, those moments, those roles make it such a small price to pay. So with regards to going in for an audition we've already spoke about the fact that you can't control what the end result is you can't control what people will think of you what you can control is how much work you put in you can control how well you prepare which is essentially the same thing as the work but specifically in terms of preparation i'm talking about getting there early being hydrated getting an early night's sleep the night before discipline those are the things you can control now as you said you go in and you get rejection after rejection and you'll have put God knows how much work into each audition. And I've, I've had some doozies. <laughs> I've had some doozies where the work I've put in to then just hear absolutely nothing, not even get the no, just hear nothing. But what as an actor you've got to remember is every single one of those auditions is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to work on your own craft with some text that is a variable to anything else you've worked on before. That work will improve you as an actor. It just will. Whether you notice it or not, you will learn things by doing that work. You do a podcast, which is called? Are You Having a Draft? And what's that about? Well, Daniel, we have a fantasy football league, which we've been doing for numerous years now, and lo and behold, we created the Are You Having a Draft podcast, which now accompanies our fantasy football league. So you've made a podcast. I'm doing a podcast. How are you listening to your own voice? I've got used to it now. I, I'm involved a lot in the editing process. So if there's something that really grates on me, I will tend to try and caress that a little bit. I find I, I actually edit my voice more than the first time interviewing. So I'll, I'll like edit out ums and ahs. And I, of course, I, I of hate, course. I hate the way I talk. And I, I constantly repeat words at the beginning of a question. So I'll be like, right, right. So uh, I, wonder, I wonder if, uh, 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 and I'll, I'll just be editing all of that <laughs> and leave, leave everything anyone else has said for. Well, mate, yeah. your voice has gone on such a journey since we first met each other. I mean, we were teenagers when we first met. And your voice, obviously, both our voices have changed. But I feel like ever since you've been involved in the work that you're doing now, I wonder if it's a clarity of thought rather than a specific tonal training or something. But the way you communicate now is incredible. There's, well, clarity is the word. Every time we're discussing something, I never find myself going, oh, I'm confused about what he's saying here. I'll just, I'll just laugh along and ha, 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 I hope we change the subject soon. I never have that. Yeah, there's such an increase in clarity in, in how your message comes across whenever you're talking about something. Maybe we're all, we're all wiser as well, I suppose. It gives us a chance to actually 
think things through before we say them. I really think there'll be a lot of people who are like, really, Bradley? (laughs) (laughs) What are your memories of using your voice when you were younger? My memories of using my voice, probably a lot of it was just playing around with my voice. Not intentionally with the idea of training it, but I was always mimicking movies I was watching or TV shows or accents that I heard. Not because I was like, oh, I'll try and learn how to do that. It just naturally was a thing that happened. You, you sort of split your time when you were younger between America and England, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, that's actually, that's probably plays a lot into the story behind my weird voice, I suppose. I moved around a lot as a kid. Part of that was growing up in Florida and my accent, I think, just bounced around all over the place because it was never sort of, I was never kind of settled in one area long enough for it to ingrain into my into my actual voice into my actual accent and so what I've come out the other side of all that with is whatever this hybrid is now I suppose that's that's the word for my accent it's a hybrid of experiences I've had along the way and what was your experiences of the both those school systems then both in America and England when I was in at school in America it felt very much like it was a very encouraging environment if you were prepared to display yourself, display your skills. In England, I always felt that it was a lot more... I came back from America. I'd been through the schooling system where it was about promoting yourself. It was about being bold and brash and aiming high and publicly aiming high, not being afraid to say, hey, I'm the best at this, I'm going to show you. And I would do that. I would do it's, that. It's almost like that. that's so the opposite to the sort of English mentality, isn't it? It's the antithesis, my friend. And this I learned when I, I'd sort of forgotten about it from my early schooling because I suppose because I was quite young when I then went to America and I spent all this time being sort of praised or getting plaudits when I did well in sports and never being a backlash for me sort of being proud of that or being happy about that circumstance. Then I got back to England. I spent my teenage years at a high school called Maidley High School. And that was the biggest culture shock going because in Australia, I think they call it tall poppy syndrome, where any poppies protruding from the, the cluster gets, the head gets chopped off. How did that, like such a kind of clash of cultures at a young age, how do you think that has helped shape you now and your voice, I suppose, in a metaphorical sense. Vocally, I think what that lends itself to is when you are in social situations, or in in both, in work situations as well, you learn how to listen and use your voice effectively when it has something to say. And I would say you and I both went through the exact same drama training at the exact same time. And I'm aware of the transformation I went through from drama school alone. I think my friends from the Shire, every time I came back for a holiday, they seemed very aware of a evolution that was kind of taking place in me socially, I suppose. Let's talk a little bit about then the training of the voice. And as you mentioned, we both went through that together. And I often liken actors to teachers and teachers to actors, especially in, in terms of the voice element, because you are, you're definitely performing, you've got an audience, and you know it's very very important that you 
use your voice effectively. When I first started teaching about five years ago, this is a true story, you'd get to the end of the day and you'd, lo you'd lose your voice because I'd lost that routine and practice of maintaining it mm. that, that we had at Drama Centre. And I ended up, and this is honestly true, I used to teach using a microphone <laughs> to save my voice. <laughs> so I used to stand there teaching, speaking through a microphone. Because especially as a drama teacher, you're constantly having to get people to be quiet, and then go off and collaborate and work, and then get them to be quiet, and then go off and collaborate and work. So how important do you think is that element of training your voice and then keeping that up? And you know, how much of that have you kept in, in your practice? And how has that fed into your work now? I do a vocal warm-up, similar to, if not exactly the same as we did with uh, Anne Walsh used to take us through that vocal warm-up and I would say I do that maybe not strictly every day but pretty regular basis I would say on average like four times a week and it's interesting what you said about losing your voice because if I'm ever maybe nervous or don't fully trust what I'm saying or talking about I notice that there's probably a degree of strain that comes into my voice because I'm wanting to try and cover up the fact that maybe I'm nervous or what have you so there's overcompensation with the muscles and the mechanics of it and I think I've experienced that as well where my voice at the end of it I've gone you winged that the whole way through if you weren't honest with yourself about it your voice is now telling you the truth of what that situation was and in its own way that can be quite helpful because you go right let's as you say being analytical what was it that I was nervous about why did I feel nervous? Did I need to feel nervous? You can break it down and talk to that small part of your brain that still clings on to being a child that's afraid of stuff. And it always boils down to very basic emotions that why you would be afraid in those situations. And thankfully, again, touch wood, I don't often find myself in those situations too many times. Tell me what your memories of that intensive voice training at drama school, because people... I suppose, won't have an insight into that really about mm. what it's like to kind of really spend three years of your life. And a big part of that is training your voice to use it. I mean, yeah. I, think, I really think that that should be added into teacher training. It's sort of something that's just totally brushed aside and forgotten about, but it's such a, a vast part of a teacher's daily life. You said earlier about how you compare actors with teachers yeah in terms of the performance and that reminded me of something that my mum said my mum worked a whole chunk of her career was spent working as a hotel reception manager she was essentially the face of one or two hotels for whoever turned up at that hotel she was the first face they saw and she once said to me about how she felt like she was very much on show she took the responsibility of being the face of the hotel because she was the first welcoming face they saw and she would greet them and she took a lot of pride in wanting people to feel as comfortable as they could in this setting of being in a hotel that they maybe hadn't stayed in before or maybe they had and they'd been made they felt familiar with it it was important to keep a continuity with that. And my mum always, always worded it in maybe slightly a different way, but it was very much the fact that she felt like she was doing a performance. So I think that's interesting in terms of you saying that, because I feel like professions as a whole hold on to that level of performance relative to their own field. 
to build on what you were saying about you sense that when you're nervous or you're not confident in what you're saying or the truth of what you're saying mm. that comes through in your voice but that's mm. so relevant to teaching as well because kids in particular just sniff out any fear any sense of inauthenticity and so that just comes through and you know as a teacher or, or emotion as well actually I have to say kids just sort of get that sense no matter how hard you try to hide it it's uh it comes through in your voice almost kind of in that weird subconscious way and the sound just tells people what you're actually thinking and feeling yeah my theory on that is kids aren't necessarily able to articulate what it is that made them aware that they could sense that what i feel kids sense is boundaries set out by adults we are very much the product of the boundaries that our parents set for us and as soon as we meet that boundary our parents go whoa there you go there's the limit and of course that boundary is different for each kid because parents are different each parent parents differently and that's the same with teachers it's not that kids are going let's probe the weakness it's that they're feeling this space that's there and they expand and consume that space until the boundary says stop and the boundary is that teacher in whatever form of communication it may be saying that's your lot um so i've li I've, I've lived with you briefly and i've known you for a long time and one of my observations is that you're very good at leaning into difficult conversations. Uh, <laughs> and uh, one of the things which Oracy attempts to do is provide a set of strategies and give confidence to students and teachers and, and others to, to do that. Because I don't think we are good in general as a society at having difficult conversations. I'd agree, yeah. And so I just wondered what, your strategies were what are your thoughts on how you go about having difficult conversations it's probably a bit of backstory to this i this goes into hindsight as well i realize my upbringing wasn't probably the most straightforward and i kind of feel like a lot of the times if i'm in a situation now I always think, well, no matter how bad it is, or if I'm in a tough situation, I always think to myself, well, no matter how bad it is, you got through this, this, and this when you were a kid, and nothing's going to be as bad as that. As long as you, well, forgive me. The fact that you can get through that, you have it within you to overcome other things. It's not that things won't be, you know, things won't happen in life, which won't be as much of a challenge, but um, I believe what that has then done is kind of forced me to be quite open with friends and loved ones because I'm I think when I was a kid there was a lot of probably a lot of bottling up I think when I got back from America there was a hell of a lot of bottling up because it was all about the sort of bravado still I felt I had to present a front in the same way that I'd probably done as a kid in America uh, and I was then shown the other side of that coin and went, oh, this is much healthier. This feels much better when I talk about things and going through that experience of talking about things, I feel I then probably picked up on or developed a, a degree of sensitivity with regards to other people of when they might need to talk about things or if it might be good for them to talk about things. 
I, I, by no means an expert, but I, it's something I probably use the word again, analyze when I do have those conversations because I'm aware of the effects that those conversations can have on people, both positive and negative. And obviously you want to have a positive effect on somebody and you want to make somebody feel better in a situation. Or I certainly do just because not you could, you can take altruism out of it. It'll make me feel better if someone else feels better off the back of a conversation with me. It's not rocket science. It's not kind of mother Teresa stuff. It's, I think it helps everyone to kind of promote a good environment, a healthy environment. So having those conversations, I think once I took a few of them head on myself, I kind of went, Oh, no one got hurt whilst we had that conversation. I'm, I aired some things that I was scared about and I, or I was feared about and I found out something about someone else who has been through a similar situation. You find out so much with people. Again, you're trusted kind of inner circle, as it were, is, is who I tend to stick to with these, these conversations. But you find out so much about people when you open up a bit because people then open up to you I, I find in terms of there's a trust that's passed back and forth when you do open up with people do you think you mentioned a lot about looking into backstory either of yourself or others to sort of explain behavior and you've also talked a lot about being analytical do you think that's naturally your personality or do you think studying as an actor and then becoming an actor has developed that in you because that's that is part of an actor's job to look at the backstory of a character and to really analyze why a, a character behaves in the way they do yeah always been there always been there and again i couldn't necessarily articulate it when i was a kid but always been there i've always been trying to figure out human beings what age are you talking here because that i'd say that's really rare for a young person to be thinking in that self analytical way and what i'll tell you what it was is when i say i move schools a lot and you have to adapt very quickly if you want to settle in and i really wanted to settle in i, I every time i found myself got into a new school i i made a quick effort to make an ally make make like a best friend as it were and i'd make a quick effort to join the football team because i'd always I knew that I could impress people by playing football. That was always an easy way to make friends is to join the football team and score goals because people then go, oh, he's good at football. He must be all right or whatever. It's a bizarre thing to sort of be judged on, but it was very much a, you know, a factor when you're going through the schooling system. And when you're changing schools, I think you're having to read a new set of people and as I got older, I realized that there were these archetypes which were in each group. I didn't realize that at first. I was sort of learning individually about all these people. And then as I got older, I realized there were, you know, each group had its dynamic and you had to sort of find your, your role within that dynamic, I guess. And that required a lot of analysis. Whether I was specifically aware that that was what I was doing, I can't say how conscious I was of that. But in hindsight, I'm very aware that that was exactly what I was doing. I, I think I spent so much time trying to fit myself into these new groups every time I moved schools that I, there was a familiarity there. There was a, there's a comfort I have in those, those scenarios because I've done so much work in trying to acclimatize myself to those, to those groups. It's a bit like you were describing the group dynamics as different archetypes, right? 
yeah and each group needs a set of archetypes but if there's a double of one of those archetypes uh-huh. they're like not needed within that group because yeah. you've already got that archetype it's a bit like casting or when they're choosing a year group for drama school you wouldn't yes. choose two of the same archetype and so you almost when you're talking about facade and the performance you're sort of playing the archetype which you know is required to fit within that group and belong in that group yeah yeah I mean, I think you've probably hit on the point of why it was why the toughest transition was coming back from America, going into. Well, you've met all my friends from the Shire, and to this day, they were still very close. But I went through a journey with them because I came back from America, and there was no place for the archetype I was bringing into it. There just wasn't, and it wasn't even because there was somebody else who was already playing that role. It was whoa that is that is a lot like english humor is so completely different to american humor we really have to kind of like pull ourselves down a peg or two in front of our friends and 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 i i i have got such an appreciation for that because it it shows a hell of a lot of strength to be able to do that in front of your friends that you can ridicule yourself in such a way and i had to learn how to do that because i had not done that at all in america and therefore there was no role within the group that didn't do that because you had to be able to laugh at yourself before you were allowed to laugh at anybody else. Mm. That's so interesting about the kind of psyche of American children, isn't it? And they're set up to be so proud and shout really loud about their success and their achievements. I wonder if it can also, it's setting up for, it's setting up for like big success or big failure and nothing oh, yeah. in between, isn't it? Three, three final quick ones, which are, favorite subject at school, favorite teacher and why, mm-hmm. and then also knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given your teachers that taught you? Favorite subject at school, I had a favorite, very publicly favorite subject, and that was PE. Secretly, and it wasn't a subject at school, per se, but it was drama, it was acting, it was whatever extracurricular form that took. Favourite teacher, there's a few. I had a mentor in high school, uh, her name was Mrs. Vorberg, who had my back and gave me a degree of leeway, more than I deserved, I would say, but because of that, I think she allowed me a bit more room to realize in certain situations where I needed to buck up my ideas. There was a guy at Fenton Sixth Form College called Mr. Hill. He was a PE teacher. And he was, he had a way of connecting to the students, which I've never seen in any other teacher, in the way that you knew he was in charge, but bizarrely, he was your pal. He knew how to sort of get a jovial atmosphere going. He knew how to tell a joke, tell a story. He knew how to get the lesson that he was trying to teach you into your brain in such a way that it was just an enjoyable, fun experience being in there. And ha- it was like you were having a laugh with a group of your classmates, but you were learning at the same time. He also knew, without ever seeming like this being way, he knew how to get the class to get their head down when they needed to. The final of the third was knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your teachers? The best experiences I've had with teachers are the ones, as you've said, that have given a little bit of themselves 
allowed me to to see that in whatever way and has made me feel comfortable about whatever I relate to in that. It's made me go, oh, this is another human being. And there are teachers out there who you find yourself, you do not want to disappoint them. All right, man. Much love, sir. Give us a bell when you need, when and if you need. Yeah, cool, mate. Take care. See you soon. Yeah, speak soon, pal.